When I was little, I would I got to pack my own lunch, and I would often have a peanut butter and uh, just confectioner sugar <laughs> sandwiches on white bread. So less healthy, <laughs> but delicious. <laughs> or like marshmallow puff. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I have a question for you. How, uh, my, our our parish priest, Anthony, asked me about Mm -hmm. this. How long can you say Happy New Year to someone? Ooh, I think the first time you see him after the New Year. So if you see him in July and you haven't seen them since You can still say Happy New Year? Yeah, I think so. That's my rule. (laughs) And I suppose this is our first time meeting on mic. Yes, Which is why you can still tell me that. Yes. All right. Well, Happy New Year to you as well. Yeah. And so what what drink are we bringing in the New Year with, Zach? So a listener named Neil wrote into the show to give us his own cocktail recipe. So this is a Manhattan, but it's not just any Manhattan. No. Uh, It's his late great-uncle, Father Andy Whitman Jr., S.J. So his his great-uncle was a Jesuit priest and uh, imparted this wisdom upon him before his death. And we wanted to uh, thank Neil for sending in this uh, recipe and honor Father Andy Whitman, S.J., and he, who is a mathematician and a scholar in addition to being a Jesuit priest. Uh, the, what makes this unique, it's a normal Manhattan, but just more bourbon. So evidently Maker's <laughs> it was Mark... made for me. Yeah, evidently Maker's Mark was a favorite of Father Whitman's. So four parts that, one part sweet vermouth, and a dash of bitters. All right. So, cheers, cheers, Father Andy. Oh, yeah. That's bourbon. Woo! <laughs> All right. But also a good reminder, <laughs> listeners, send us your cocktail recipes. I feel like we hadn't gotten one in a long time, and it's a lot more fun. We, yeah, we, we used to get them more. We haven't like asked that. in a while, so yeah. it's maybe our fault. But yeah. uh, we do need help getting our drinking game going, so right. send it in. Jesuitical at americamedia.org is where you can send those. Ashley, who are we talking to this week? We are speaking with Martha Hennessy. She is a Catholic peace activist and the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, who you might have heard of. Yeah, you may have heard of Dorothy Day. Uh, in April of last year, uh, Martha and six other activists who make up what's, what they call themselves the Plowshare Seven, uh, they were arrested for breaking into a naval facility in Georgia that houses nuclear-armed submarines. Right, so they broke into this um, facility. They did symbolic actions of civil disobedience, like pouring out their own blood, um, beating on nuclear weapons uh, with hammers. Um, and in October, they were found guilty on four federal charges and now face up to 25 years in prison for their actions. Yeah. And it's unclear when the sentencing trial is going to be. So we're not sure how much or if they're going to face that prison time. But it's definitely still a possibility at this yeah, point. And so I'm really glad that we got the opportunity to talk to her. Um, it was uh Recorded back in December. So it's me and Olga interviewing Martha while Zach was off gallivanting in China, I believe. Yeah. So if I start to sound like Olga in this next interview, (laughs) um, we still miss her, but uh, that's why. But first... It's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, Our first story, I know this is on a lot of people's uh, minds, the rising tensions between the United States and Iran. Pope Francis commented on this indirectly um, during his Angelus prayer on Monday, and he called on all parties to keep alive the flame of dialogue and self-control and avoid the shadow of enmity. Yeah, so last week, uh, President Trump ordered a drone strike that killed one of Iran's top generals, uh, Qasem Soleimani, um, which in the wake of that, Iran has avowed revenge against the United States, and it's no longer abiding by the nuclear agreement that it had reached with the U.S. and other countries in 2015. And 
in a region that's already unstable is now facing the possibility of even further escalating violence. Right. And in the face of Iran's promise to retaliate, President Trump said that he already had picked out 52 sites in Iran, including cultural sites that the U.S. would target if U.S. Um, person or equipment were harmed in the region. So it's it's a really scary time um, for people in the U.S. and especially people on the ground in the Middle East. Yeah. And it's just like casual. It's a weird moment where the president is casually tweeting out threats of war crimes. Yeah. And our colleague Kevin Clark wrote about an overlooked aspect of this story. Um, so this attack happened in Iraq, not in Iran. Um, Soleimani was in a uh, an airport in Baghdad when he was killed by the U.S. drone. Um, and there's a very complicated relationship between Iraq and Iran, between Christian Sunni and Shiite Muslims within Iraq. Um, and this strike uh, threatens the um, already very shaky place of Christians living in Iraq. Yeah. And at one point, Christians made up maybe 10 percent of the population in Iraq. And now, after all of the events of the past 20, 30 years, you can count them in the thousands. Yeah. And so they're already a large minority there. And oftentimes they are sort of targeted as reprisals for what uh, the West, so us in the United States, does to different countries and groups there. And in the northern part of Iraq, where they are just recovering from ISIS's takeover of that territory, they are living in a very tense situation with Shiite Muslims who are in direct contact with Iran. So they are in a very vulnerable place. Um, so I would definitely recommend our colleague Kevin Clark's reporting on this. We'll put the, the link to that in the show notes. Um, but another part of the story is how people in the U.S. are responding, specifically Catholics. Yeah, and Catholics are sort of looking for I think some statements or some leadership from different people in our church um, and some groups have put out statements um, calling for de-escalation and for peace and condemning the drone strike uh, but notably absent from that list and this is as of Tuesday uh, January 7th the U.S. Bishop's Office of International Justice and Peace still hasn't put out a statement on what's been going on. Yeah I think a lot of people well if not surprised, are disappointed by that. Um, I, one of our colleagues wrote a story about Catholic reactions and reached their spokesperson, and they said they're not putting out a statement at this time, but they're monitoring the situation. Um, and it just seems like this is an area where like a Catholic moral voice is so desperately needed. Yeah, and I mean, we've got the tradition to speak on this, right? We have mm -hmm. a lot of just war theory that comes out of our tradition yeah. um, that you could definitely say a lot of the strike was in clear violation of and right. sort of the threats going forward are a clear violation of. Um, and it's also I just found it puzzling because the Office of Justice and Peace has spoken on tensions in Iraq a lot, especially mm -hmm. even in the last year. You can find multiple statements commenting on rising tensions. They spoke a lot during the negotiations for the nuclear mm -hmm. agreement. So I'm not really sure what's going yeah, on here. It's not like they would have to start from scratch. Right. It's not like this is an area where they're, they don't have any experts to work yeah. with. So I, I completely unplugged for most of the holidays and I didn't really start seeing anything about it until the next morning when I was scrolling through Instagram as I do and I start seeing um, these memes basically making jokes about World War Three, which was a kind of disconcerting way to learn yeah. about what because I literally like saw the World War Three thing first and I was like wait what and then went to the New York Times and saw it and it was just kind of disturbing that like I don't know memes are made by people in like high school and college and so these mm -hmm. are kids who grew up after 9-11 and have only known war in the Middle East. And so the idea that like their only way of coping with it is to make jokes, I can understand it, but it's also kind of scary. Yeah, it's just, it's a weird, it speaks to the moment we're in where I guess 
when you're facing something that's terrifying, uh, laughter is an option, right? I guess. Um, yeah, there are, I mean, there are peace marches planned for this upcoming mm-hmm. weekend, I believe. So hopefully that will give people the opportunity to channel some of this angst and fear and concern into something that um, kind of stands up for peace. So look out for those in your in your city. What's our next story, Zach? So this is a fun story. Definitely more fun than the last one. Uh, in the Diocese of Lafayette in Louisiana, uh, parishioners got together before Christmas to bless their community and their farmland, but uh, they had some help from a crop-dusting plane. That's right. <laughs> they filled 100 gallons of holy water into a crop-duster plane and bless their community with this. Yes. No, the pictures of this are really wonderful, so you should go look at them. So this happened at St. Anne Parish, uh, and the pastor, Father Matthew Barzer, a parishioner came up to him and had this idea, like, hey, what if we blessed all of our farmland ahead of the (laughs) planting season? I know, and I'm just imagining his initial thought, like, yeah, I suppose, why not? (laughs) Um, so yeah, just taking this like giant mass of water, loading it into a plane and then letting it loose on the farmland is like, I, I, it felt so weird in the best way and reminded me of like a lot of the things I love about Catholicism and its symbols and it's like physical Mm -hmm. manifestations of sacramentality. I thought this was like an incredible example of that. Yeah. This worldly in the best way. But it does raise the question, how much water is too much water to bless? Like, can you just bless an ocean? Right. Someone brought that up in our Facebook group when I posted this story. I was like, this seems like perfect for the Jesuitical community. And someone's like, I've always had these questions about how much holy water you can you actually bless? Like, why not just do all of it? Right. Yeah. So we're going to speak to some canon lawyers and get back to you on that. (laughs) What's our next story, Ashley? Okay, so we've got two Pope Francis stories to round out the signs of the times this week. Um, And they both start on New Year's Eve in Rome. Right. And I bet you've heard of one of these Pope Francis New Year's Eve stories. But the one you probably didn't hear about was that Pope Francis uh, attended the funeral mass of a friend of his, laywoman uh, Maria Graziamara, who's had the nickname Nella. She was a, a scholar on New Testament and died recently at the age of 95 the day before. Um, so Pope shows up. This is a friend of his, someone he's befriended over the past years. And there's an auxiliary bishop who is uh, celebrating the funeral mass, notices that the Pope is there and sends someone out to ask him. Can you him, imagine just like presiding at mass and noticing the Pope is in, in the, the third it, pew? Yeah. <laughs> so he's, I he's, do wonder what pew... Pope Francis decided to sit in. It's a good question. Um, So Auxiliary Bishop sends someone out to ask Holy Father, do you want to celebrate? And he said, no, I just like want to be there to mourn the loss of my friend. Um, I found this like super moving. Uh, Just a reminder that Pope Francis is human and experiences very human emotions like grief. And um, it's not always his job to lead people in their processing of that grief. He has to have a chance to have his own grief. Yeah. And that relates to the second story that you probably have heard of, um, which we are calling Slapgate. Yeah, Pope Francis Slapgate. Um, So later on New Year's Eve, uh, Pope Francis was greeting the crowds in St. Peter's Square, wherein, uh, quote-unquote, overeager, I think it's fair to say, an overeager pilgrim, uh, shook Pope Francis's hand and then just wouldn't let go. Yeah, and the Pope tried to walk away, and then the woman pulled him back, and then he... Maybe cleared, yanked. Y- yeah, yanked would be fair, and he looked like he was in pain. Uh, the Pope has a history of sciatica, and so you you see him kind of getting twisted back um, towards this woman, and then when she refuses to let go, he, quote-unquote, slaps her hand. Yeah, and I think I had a 
I had qualms with even mm-hmm. using the word slap. It's yeah. more of a tis tis type, like please, yeah. like let go. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly in frustration. Right. Um, and so the woman finally let let go, and he was able to keep walking. And and he looked he looked maybe maybe in pain, maybe a little angry, upset. Um, but people freaked out when yeah, they saw this video. You, I'm guessing, listener, you've already seen this video, so you you probably didn't need us to describe it for you. Um, but I thought maybe we could talk about whether or not. This what this says about sort of the moment we're in, uh, in terms of both media and video and virality, and where Pope Francis intersects with those. Um, yeah, because yeah, yeah, we are in this moment, uh, which is unique for the papacy. Which anything the Pope says or does, um, can spread around the world in a matter of seconds. Um, and often that has worked in the Pope's favor. There, he is a he is a Pope that has relied on um, powerful gestures and images to to get his message out there, whether that's giving um, a hug to someone with severe disabilities or meeting with migrants. Um, you know, people Those see stor- these images and mm-hmm. they're moved. Right. And this is definitely one instance where people saw these stories and I'm not sure that people were moved. Uh, this like broke through almost to Baby Yoda level of... <laughs> cultural consciousness like i had a friend who i was texting happy new year who Mm -hmm. would never really comment on church news to me or anything like that and he just responds with hope your new year uh, is off to a better start than the popes (laughs) yikes so some of the headlines that um came out after this uh cnn said pope francis has used his new year message to denounce violence against women hours after slapping a woman's hand to free himself from her grip as if like talking about domestic violence yeah, as if there's any equivalence between yeah d- domestic violence and like trying to break free from an overeager pilgrim. Um, but because Pope Francis is a very holy person, he eventually offered an apology. Not even like the next day. So yeah. the next day during his Angelus, he um, sort of set aside his remarks and uh, said, like, you know, sometimes I, I have I lost my patience and I yeah. want to apologize for my lapse in patience last night. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, man. If only I had that humility, even when I'm in the right, to be able to listen and apologize. Yeah. So maybe you should start your New Year's off like Pope Francis. That's true. It's time for New Year's resolutions. Yep. Joining us in the studio is the Catholic activist and granddaughter of Dorothy Day, Martha Hennessy. Welcome to Jesuitical, Martha. Thank you for having me. We are super honored that you are joining us in studio today. So thank you. So in April of last year, seven Catholic peace activists successfully broke onto naval submarine base Kings Bay in Georgia, which is home to U.S. nuclear armed submarines. And you were one of those Catholics. Can you take us back to that night? Why were you there? We went there for love. We went there for hope. We went there in faith. We chose the 50th anniversary of the killing of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So we certainly wanted to highlight the issues of racism, materialism, and militarism. And we chose that particular site because of its extreme uh, lethality with the Trident nuclear submarine fleet. Can you tell us what you did once you were on the base? We base our action on Isaiah 2-4, where we are called to beat our swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And so it's a sacramental, symbolic, nonviolent uh, disarmament. Mm. 
hitting the missiles with the hammers and pouring the blood. I myself went to the um, administrative building where all of the command and control of these weapon systems happens. And I posted an indictment on the door saying that the, this program is illegal and immoral. And the pouring of the blood, uh, I poured it on the threshold of the door. Um, it is an act of atonement, an act of contrition. Um, we are, as Christians, called to shed our own blood and not the blood of innocent others. And Martha, you've said that it was a difficult decision for you to do this. Can you talk to us about how you spiritually prepared for this action? I love what Sister Megan Rice said. She participated in the 2012, the previous Plowshares action, and she simply said her whole life had prepared her for that moment and that act. And I would share that sentiment. Um, I came back to the Catholic Worker to Volunteer about 10 years ago. I had no idea about participating in a Plowshares um, community. I grew up hearing about the Plowshares movement. It began the year my grandmother died. Spiritually, it just made sense to me that I do have the free will and choice to stand in a place where I can unequivocally say, I will not consent to this. So you're now, you're facing the consequences of, of these actions. Um, you and your fellow activists have been found guilty on charges, including trespassing and conspiracy. Um, and you said after that, that the judge's job is to protect the weapon systems. Our job is to keep the faith, hope, and love. Um, did you did you expect to be found guilty when you did these did these actions? Yes, I think we always have to be prepared to um, be found guilty and to serve uh, federal prison time. So it, it is no surprise in terms of how the trial was conducted. What the judge essentially said was that we were not to speak about the nuclear arsenal because it would possibly contaminate the jury in terms of confusing the issue, misleading the jury, um, giving undue delay, a waste of time. There is a seamless machine in terms of the Pentagon, our judicial system, the prisons, and our military industrial complex. Steve Kelly has said the most dangerous room of the Pentagon is the courtroom. And so we understood, and with the history of the movement and all of the trials conducted, we're always stripped of any kind of uh, defense relating to justification, necessity, international law, or faith. Yeah. So going into it, you... You knew that this was a, a possible, maybe even likely outcome. Um, so it seems like you weren't judging these actions based on how effective they were going to be. Is, is that fair to say? Were they worth doing in and of themselves? Or did you feel the need that you just you had no choice but to do them, even if it wasn't necessarily going to change anything? Well, I think that it has changed things. Mm. I think that we cannot underestimate the effects, the ripple effects of, of any of this. I mean, we have no idea how the jury experienced the whole thing. We have um, no idea how people on the base 
we're affected by our presence there. I, I would like to think that it does bring hope to others. And the arresting officer um, who eventually took us in, when he walked up to us, it was as if that he understood why we were there. And, you know, he, he revealed to us how he had lost an, an, a child. And I, to me, that was an incredible experience of strangers opening their hearts to each other. And we can't judge what the effects are. And, and there's also the cumulative effect as each action occurs um, perhaps more barriers are broken down in terms of the whole legal uh, approach. Uh, we were able to speak about our faith and about the Catholic Church and about nuclear abolition. To be able to stand and be willing to self-sacrifice in the service of others you know, is an absolute privilege. It's, it's a rare place to be. This whole experience has been incredibly um, difficult, but also has engaged my faith at a level that I've not experienced before. And Martha, you, you've mentioned Jesuit father Steve Kelly a few times, who he's had a hard time in prison, and most of the time he is in solitary confinement. Yes. How did you and the other Kings Bay members keep the faith when you guys were in jail together after the action? And how are, will yes. you keep the faith if you guys return? Thank you. Good question. We um, did all the preparation ahead of time before the action by reading the daily readings together and doing Bible study together and praying and discerning. And so once we were in the county jail, we continued that process and some of the inmates joined us in that process. Our spiritual director uh, read us a letter that he received in jail from Phil Berrigan and the points that Phil made were um, prayer comes first, um, listen to the other inmates. I mean, it's a jail ministry. Going on to the base is one phase. The um, trial in the courtroom is another phase. And the third phase, of course, is the prison ministry. This is one of the many actions that you've participated in. You, you've protested weapons, the use of drones, the torture of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. Do you remember your first protest? Yes, 1979. Uh, Dorothy, Granny was still alive. My son was two years old. We um, leafleted at the Public Service Corporation's headquarters in Manchester, New Hampshire, protesting Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant. You know, the nuclear weapons industry is tied in with the nuclear energy uh, industry. And there were five of us. We all happened to have been of Catholic backgrounds, interestingly. And some of them were apple pickers that I had worked with. And Seabrook actually ended up going online anyhow. But um, that was my very first experience. And we were given nine months in prison. And I served three. Wow. And it was very painful. What I learned in terms of who is in prison are the disenfranchised. You know, I, I'm trained as an occupational therapist, and those who are in prison are the ones who did not get proper educations, did not get proper nutrition, um, were violated in so many ways. And we just were not taking care of the most vulnerable amongst us. And 90% of the issues for the women in the prisons are addiction, violence, and poverty. So this has been um, a long fight for you. 
Um, and one thing I'm curious about is I feel like today there's just not the the same level of urgency around um, the threat posed by nuclear weapons. When I think about people my own age, I think they're much more likely to be concerned about climate change yes. than nuclear weapons, which, I mean, that they should be concerned about both. But yes. so you mentioned wanting to continue to raise awareness even even if you do end up up in prison. So, I don't know, why do you think people aren't as afraid of these weapons as they used to be, um, and, and how do you hope to change that? Yes, we've done an incredible job of um, making the nuclear issue invisible. I think what the judge did in the courtroom was a fine example of how we're just not allowed to talk about it or think about it. And it certainly is similar to um, climate chaos in terms of the, the threat level. Um, the U.S. military has a mammoth carbon footprint, and it's contributing to the climate disruption that's happening. And, you know, since, since 1991, with this um, burning of the oil wells in Kuwait, I mean, war is completely tied in with what's happening to the environment. And we have done an incredible job of not letting the media report on what's going on and not telling the kids about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I have heard young folks say they visited Hiroshima and never even knew the history of our dropping the bomb until they got there. This is something Pope Francis has talked a lot about. He was just in Japan. So has has he been an inspiration for your for your activism? Pope Francis is unbelievable. He's he's a pope of a lifetime. As I've said before, he's a pope after Dorothy's own heart. And yes, he went to the place of great sin, and he called it a sacramental act. And he is unequivocal in saying it's um, immoral to manufacture, possess, stockpile, threaten to use, never mind to use. And I really am praying that the Catholic Church, especially the U.S. bishops, um, start giving this message from the pulpit. We did a vigil at St. Patrick's Cathedral on November 24th in solidarity with um, what the Pope was saying about nuclear weapons. And nothing was reflected in that day's homilies about where the Pope was and what he was working towards. And this is tragic. This is incredibly tragic. Um, it is so critical to at least, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to call ourselves um, participants in a democracy, we really need to allow dialogue and discussion about this topic. So Martha, you, you've been a Catholic activist for a very long time. What do you think of the state of Catholic activism today in 2019, and how do you wish it were different? Yes, well, I would like to hear more from the pulpit with regard to both issues of climate disruption and nuclear holocaust. And I do think that the media plays a critical role in um, getting the word out there. How do we get back to the gospel teachings of Jesus, the nonviolent peacemaking message? And I do believe that the U.S. Um, bishops play a key role. This is the world's sole empire. We're in the heart of the empire state, the empire of America, 
And it's the U.S. Catholic Church that really must step up to the plate. We're spending trillions of dollars on war. Um, the the government just approved a $737 billion budget for the NDAA, uh, National Defense Authorization Act. How about if Catholics started studying where the money is going and come to the Catholic worker, volunteer, um, minister to the poor? We are the poor. We need to be with the poor. And this is the faith. I mean, I have the extraordinary example in my life of how Dorothy lived. And I was going to say this is this is the faith that you were you were introduced to, um, which a lot of Catholics that is not the faith they grew up with. Um, so how how does how does your grandmother's life and legacy inform your work, and what could other people take from from her life? Uh, read read her books certainly. Um, she wrote an incredible article in September of 1945, incensed with the killing of the Japanese in those two cities. And her voice was a very rare voice. Um, you know, she had to deal with the cardinals and the bishops who were opposed to her. You know, now we want to canonize her. But in her day, she was um, uh, marginalized quite significantly. So what's next for you and your fellow plowshares? There's something called a pre-sentencing interview where they look at your lives. They look at your previous um, so-called criminal record. All of us, it's nothing but nonviolent actions attempting to uphold the rule of law. You know, stop the torture, stop the bombings, stop the illegal use of the drones and... We will hopefully have a date for the sentencing hearing by the end of the month. Um, it is the season of Advent. It is a season of waiting. And we continue to pray that the judge has a change of heart and that she fully understands the implications of uh, what she was doing under the rule of law, never mind this culture of idolatry. All right. Well, we will definitely keep you and your fellow activists and your families in our prayers um, this Advent season. And thank you so much for, for sharing all of this with us. Thank you both. We but, do have one more question. Yeah, before though. we let oh. you go, we've got one final question that we ask all of our guests. If you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be and why? Well, Dorothy, of course. Sorry. I'm a little <laughs> partial. A little biased. <laughs> Uh, because she is a saint so desperately needed in our times. I mean, she is a saint. Many of us understand that. But it's her position as a woman who was in real life, a mother, a grandmother, um, a, a person who did go to prison, a, a writer, a journalist. Um, she gives us uh, the most wonderful 21st century example of what it means to commit one's life to Christ and to the works of mercy. Yeah, well, I think she's well on her way. Um, where can people go to find out more about uh, the Plowshares movement? Kings Bay Plowshares 7, the numeral 7, dot org. And there is a letter writing campaign to um, tell the judge who we all are and how we should be upholding the law rather than putting people like us in prison. Even though we're supposed to repent and part of going to prison is part of the work that we do. All right. Well, thank you so thank much you again, for the work Martha. that you do and for coming to talk to us about it. 
Thank you. it's time for some housekeeping. First, I want to alert listeners who may be seniors at Jesuit colleges. We have an amazing opportunity here at American Media, the O'Hare Fellowship. It's a multimedia one-year fellowship here in New York where you get to work on things like Jesuitical. Yeah, um, I mean, like there are other things, but yeah. let's be clear, that's the <laughs> that's the best, the best one. Um, you don't have to be, I mean, you have to be a senior at a Jesuit university or college, but you might know someone who is either a senior this year or uh, rising through the ranks that right. might want to know about this. Yeah, and you don't you don't have to be a journalism major. We have had English majors, political science majors, theology majors. Um, but, you know, if you're interested in media, if you're interested in the church and um, public affairs, then this is a great opportunity. But you don't have a lot of time. The deadline is January 15th. Uh, that's plenty of time. As a procrastinator, <laughs> that's plenty of time. But, yeah, January 15th, get your applications in. Come work with Ashley and I in New York at America Media. You can find these submission guidelines at O'HareFellows.org. And switching gears a little bit, want to give a special shout out to our new Patreon supporters this week. Uh, as a reminder, we can't do this show without the support that we get on Patreon. So thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Special shout out this week to Joel and Sandy who joined it. And just a reminder, I've said just a reminder like 10 times. <laughs> Now. Well, we want them to remember. <laughs> yeah, but you get a lot of cool stuff from Patreon. You get t-shirts, buttons, stickers, other <laughs> Jesuitical swag, including a weekly special edition newsletter exclusive to our supporters on Patreon. Yes, and on that we share things like our book recommendations. I share GIFs. Zach. G- dot GIFs. <laughs> yes, that, those are the moving images. Okay, yes. Not, not gifts. Oh, no, yeah, no, no. no, no yeah. <laughs> But we do ask you for advice. You give us gifts. Yeah, that's right. And I uh, try to share my observations from Mass the, the past weekend. So mm-hmm. some good stuff, I promise. And you can find all of that and more to support Jesuitical on patreon.com slash Media. And now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I've got a consolation um, from the break, the holiday break. Um I don't know that I particularly enjoyed the holidays this year. A lot going on, bouncing between a lot of different families, um, which is a good problem to have, I suppose, being loved by a lot of people. But it still puts a strain on us and our new marriage. Um, And also with my grandma dying, that just puts sort of a, a cloud over everything. But my consolation was being able to spend some time with her. Um, And I had just like a couple really good days with her, um, my grandma. And she doesn't get out of bed much anymore. But there's this one instance where I got to see my grandpa uh, bring communion to my grandmother. Mm. Um, I'm just watching these two people who are obviously committed to each other, but to something greater also. Like they love each other and they love God too. And it it sounds, I I don't even know how to describe it really. I'm still unpacking it. And also there's this like one moment that I know I'll remember for the rest of my life. And it's something simple and mundane as like handing my grandma her pills. And there were three of them, and she's taking them out of my hand one at a time um, with gulps of water. And I was filled with this this weird peace because it is sort of like a sad situation, but I'm sitting there and just like aware of the sacramentality of all of it and realizing it's going to take my entire life to unpack that. 
And so I'm doing that a lot in my own prayer life right now and will for the rest of my life. But the consolation was sort of just being able to be aware of all of that in the moment. Um, so, yeah. yeah. It's really hard and beautiful, but I'm glad you got the those moments with her. Yeah. What do you got this week, Ashley? Um, I also have a consolation from uh, over the uh, holiday break. Um, uh, after Christmas, I went down to the Bahamas, not just because it's the Bahamas and they're beautiful, but my older brother married a woman whose family is from the Bahamas and lives in the Bahamas now. So we were visiting the in-laws and there was this moment we we went to an Anglican service on on Sunday while we were down there. And let me tell you, they're two and a half hours long, <laughs> but they are so beautiful. Um, and I was sitting behind my older brother and his wife and a few of their nieces and aunts and uncles. And I was just like looking at him and was just like, if you had asked me seven years ago, if I could imagine my older brother, Chris, <laughs> one being at church and two being married, like no way. Um, you know, I lived with him when I first moved to New York seven years ago and he lived a pretty like isolated existence and expressed no interest in like seeing other people, much less getting married. Um mm-hmm. And then this woman came in into his life and like snuck up on him, snuck up on the family and just like opened him up to love in such an amazing way. Um, and then so just like seeing him there looking so happy um, and the way that that love has reverberated for our whole family, that we have this whole other family in the Bahamas that we now love so much. Um, so, yeah, I, it was just very moved to see how um, how God had worked in my older brother's life to to open him up to loving and being loved and how that how that just like goes out to everyone else i love that yeah i I do have one question did they ask about their wedding dj (laughs) they always send their love to their wedding dj thank you okay great (laughs) thanks chris and dina all right ashley get us out of here Jesuitical is produced by sebastian gomes our editor is noah levinson faith formation provided by father eric sundrup production help from Izzy Seneschal and Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Bill4555. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We will see you next week.